Ruth chapter 1, and we'll begin our reading in verse 8. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. As we began our study of what I have titled and referred to as Redemption's Love Story throughout the book of Ruth, throughout, throughout all four chapters of Ruth, uh, within this book, as we've begun this study, we have seen somewhat of a, we took somewhat of a survey of the circumstances of the people and the locations that are foundational within this account within the book of Ruth. We began looking, just by way of review, at the circumstances. We find that, that Elimelech and, of course, Naomi and family left Bethlehem, Judah, for Moab because of a famine. And they left the place of bread and the land of praise, if you will, to go to the place God called his washpot or the land of garbage, which, of course, was Moab. Then you find the characters within the account, the main characters of this narrative. Elimelech means uh, that God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Orpah refers to the nap or back of the neck, and it signifies that which is declining or that which is stiff-necked. And then the name Ruth means friend or female companion. And the countries then that were mentioned here of significance, the name Bethlehem Judah means house of bread and land of praise. And the name Moab refers to a land on the other side of Jordan, again, a place apart from God's blessing or out of God's will in the sense of, again, it was referred to as God's washpot. Now, last week, we began our study of the narrative itself provided within this account of Ruth in which we considered several things. First of all, the departure from God's place of blessing as we find recorded in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now the verb sojourn here, um, it does not mean simply to visit, but rather it means to dwell as an alien and as a dependent. And so this is not merely that Elimelech says, well, I'll just go visit Moab, though that's bad enough. No, he was now settling in a place in which he was an alien. He was a stranger. He did not belong there. And furthermore, he became dependent upon Moab and the people of Moab rather than being dependent upon God. Verse 2, it says, And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. What began as good intentions ended up in not only becoming his demise, but as well the demise of his family. For not only Elimelech died, but as well his two sons, Kilion and and, uh, Melon, both also uh, died. Then we come to the, what we considered concerning the consequences of departing from God's blessings in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So there's no evidence at all to support the thought 
that Elimelech was following the will of the Lord and going to Moab. There's nothing, there's no intimation of that in the text at all. In fact, in reality, in contrast to that, all the evidence infers that he acted, Elimelech acted on his own accord, and the Lord chastened Elimelech and his family accordingly. Now, it, it is interesting to note still, and we'll see this, and again, this whole book is about redemption's love story. That's what you see here. God's eternal redemptive work, not only being shadowed in the account of Ruth, but literally being realized through Ruth's redemption as Boaz and Ruth, of course, would have uh, Obed. Obed would have Jesse. Jesse would have David. And then, of course, Christ is of the seed of David and the line of David. And so it's not only a shadowing of redemption, it is truly redemption being worked out in time through this account of Ruth. And so the evidence, again, points not to, in any way, shape, or form, that Elimelech is acting according to God's will, God was directing him to go to Moab, but rather him acting on his own accord. Naomi testified upon her return to her homeland in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. She said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? This was not said for without there being reason for her making such a statement. She's aware that God has worked all of this, and, and we'll get to this in a moment, what she believes to be against her, but yet the fact of the matter is, in all of this, God is still fulfilling his redemptive purpose and plan. And so while even, and, and you, you want to talk about the omnipotence of God, the God who is beyond our understanding and comprehension, is that God is able to even fulfill his purpose despite and even working in and through man's wickedness. And there's an, there's an ultimate example of that in Scripture. What do you think that is? What would you say, brother? The crucifixion, absolutely. And Peter testified of that in Acts chapter 2. Did he not? You, by wicked hands, according to the determinate foreknowledge and counsel of God, by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Do you hear what he just said? He said, oh, God determined and purposed all this to be, but yet you are the ones in your wickedness that slew the very Son of God while God offered him and sacrificed him, but yet you physically called out for his life while he laid his life down. No man could take it from him. He literally laid it down. He offered himself. God sacrificed him on our behalf, but yet... You see, in, the, in what would be the epitome of wickedness, calling out for the very death of the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, and yet, in that, God is actually fulfilling His redemptive work and purpose. So despite the wickedness of man, despite the disobedience of man, despite the disobedience of believers, God is still faithfully working His purpose in the midst of all of this. And you see that overshadowing the book of Ruth. Because again, Naomi, Elimelech, all these bad things are happening because they leave Bethlehem, Judah to go to Moab because Elimelech, obviously, as Scripture would imply by the fact of there being a famine in Bethlehem, Judah, which we've already seen the reason and backstory of that is that God said he would judge his people through famine when they were in disobedience to him. So all this is fulfillment of God's, of God's word. 
And yet we see Elimelech and his family suffering so greatly because of their own decisions and sin. And yet in the midst of all that, overshadowing all of this, is God is working all of this out for his purpose to be fulfilled redemptively. Not only in saving Ruth and restoring Naomi, but in bringing about redemption for all of mankind through the bloodline of David. And so you see this as an overshadowing truth. That's why, again, I refer to this as redemption's love story, not just for Ruth, for mankind. And so it's a shadow of this, yes, but it's also the realization of this truth, much more than a shadow alone. Verse 5 says, And Malon and Kilion died also both of them. Elimelech's sons continued in the footsteps of their father. They married wives of Moab, and there's no implication that they had any intentions of heading back to the land of bread or land of promise. They had grown accustomed to the way of life in Moab, and they were content to live there and then also to die there. Then we looked at the return of the place of, to the place of God's blessing, verses 6 and 7. Once Elimelech died and the, their two sons died, Naomi and Elimelech's, Naomi is then left to do what she would, as we've mentioned. And by this time, there was a longing and desire within her heart to return back to the homeland, to return back to the land of bread. The wages of sin had taken their toll. And it's important to know that even in her return, Naomi credits the Lord for bringing her home. Now, that is interesting. This was not just a decision of Naomi to say, oh, man, things are really bad in Moab now, and... and So I think I'll just head back home. No, she credits God for bringing her back home. Despite everything she had lost and her emptiness, which she's already confessed, she recognized it was only because of the Lord that she had ever returned at all. Look at chapter 1, 21 and 22 again. She says, I went out full and the Lord had brought me home again empty. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Notice what she said. I went out full. She didn't say I returned empty. I went out full. I went out full. The Lord didn't take me out full. The Lord didn't lead us out full. The Lord didn't direct us out full. No, I went out full. Elimelech led her and his family to Moab. But notice she doesn't credit herself, so she takes the blame We did this to ourselves. We went out on our own. But then she says, I did not return on my own. God has brought me back. Now, he he says, the Lord brought me back. She says, empty. She said, I've been stripped of everything. I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. I am not pleasant. I am bitter. Meaning not necessarily she had a bitter spirit per se. Maybe so, maybe not. But yet she's saying, I am not pleasant. I am, I am burdened down. I have been stripped. Everything that I loved has now been stripped away from me, my family. I went out full in my family. I come back empty, but the Lord brought me home again. And that's important to recognize. By the way, you know, as, as believers, as, as children of God, we, <laughs> we never, ever, when we, when we stray, when we turn from the Lord, meaning when we that when we, when we walk away in terms of not submitting to him and not uh, humbling ourselves before him and, not, and being disobedient to him, we never restore ourselves to fellowship with the Lord. It is he who restores us. And even if we come back, having been chastened and having been stripped away all the things to which we took comfort in and looked to, it is still credit to God that he would bring us back at all. And he does that faithfully. 
within this passage of Ruth, we can observe, obviously, that there is much more to Naomi's return than one may realize at first glance. As I've already mentioned, the Lord was working in the life of Naomi despite all that she considered to be working against her. And this evening, I want us to consider how God's love was present and working as he fulfilled his eternal redemptive purpose. Again, not only that Ruth and this account and narrative is a shadow of that, but it's literally the realization of that. Again, I point you back for a moment. I don't want to digress, but I do want to mention this to help you to realize this truth. When you look at Noah and the ark, the account of the ark, and, and mankind being destroyed, and Noah and his family being, being saved, I've said to you, a lot of times people will try to take that and say, oh, here's a type of salvation, which Scripture never says is a type of salvation. Just a side note, but just to clarify, if you remember uh, in John 3, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a genuine type. That was an actual type in the Old Testament of Jesus being lifted up and being the salvation, him being made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, that we might be healed as those in the Old Testament were bitten by the uh, serpents and Moses constructed the bra- uh, brazen serpent and lifted it upon the pole. You recall the account and Jesus is making that connection saying that's a type uh, of me being lifted up. That was all pointing to this. But Noah and the ark, the account there, many people have said, oh, this is a type of salvation. But that's really a very marginalized view of what's taking place. If you recall with me, Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was no better than anyone else. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God, Hebrew says that he, by faith, God speaking to Noah, Noah obeyed, built an ark to the saving of his family. To the saving of his family is not talking about a spiritual salvation that we might refer to. It's talking about deliverance from the physical judgment upon the world at that time, and his family was spared. But to what end? It wasn't about Noah and his family being spared. It was about God's eternal redemptive purpose being fulfilled with a fallen race of mankind that God could have just wiped completely off the earth, which he almost did, but he didn't. Why? Because there's an eternal work he is working in this beyond just, a, just a, a type or a picture of salvation. It is salvation literally being realized. God's purpose being fulfilled. And so the same is true here with Ruth. I wanted to draw that out to point you to this truth that we see again, not just a picture or shadow of redemption, though it is that, it is a shadow without question, but it is the realization of this redemption taking place and coming into being. And so it's important we, that we recognize that. And so God's, God's love was present and working as his purpose was being, refilled, or being fulfilled. So, so God's love works behind the scenes. That is absolutely true. Think about your own life, for instance. Let's just pause for a moment. Even before you came to faith in Christ, if you know the Lord Jesus, God's, God's love was drawing you, working in you, bringing you to the point and place of submission and recognition of the sufficiency of the Savior that you'd never seen before. Behind the scenes, God is working. He is doing things that we don't even see or understand. And so it was true in the account of Ruth. In these verses that we've read tonight, we find a woman who has been left empty and broken. And because of the sin of her family, she now finds herself longing to be back in fellowship with the Lord and His people. Yet, the fact still remains that her life has been ransacked because of sinfulness, because of rebellion. Whether it's her fault or not, she's still suffering the consequences of that because of her husband leading her to Moab. 
Naomi had left behind the land of God's promises, the land of God's people, the land of God's praise for Moab. Now, while Naomi was concerned about the physical posterity of her daughters-in-law, and she makes that very clear in the verses. In other words, she says, you know, don't, don't stay with me. What do I have to offer you? Even if I were to find a husband, even if I were to marry, even if I were to bear sons, are you really going to wait till they become of age that you could marry them and take them as husbands now? She says, I have nothing to offer you. Don't, don't, don't go with me. There's nothing that I can give you. And so she's concerned about their physical posterity. But yet, while she's concerned about their physical posterity, the Lord was providentially providing for his spiritual posterity. And we see that in verses 8 through 14. And, and Naomi told Orpah and Ruth in verse 8, she said, go, return. They are following her. They're going with her to go to Bethlehem, Judah, where they had never been. And she says, no, stay here, go back, return. Then she tells them in verses 11 and 12, twice she says, turn again, turn again. And so she says to them, don't follow me. I have nothing of which I can offer you. Now she is viewing this totally from a physical perspective. She's lost everything and she will not bear children that they can marry. And she will not have sons that they can wed. And she's aware of that and she voices that. She says, what are you going to gain by staying with me? What are you going to profit by, by going with me? Now, they loved her. I believe even Orpah loved her, not as Ruth did, but I believe Orpah loved her as well, and they cared about her, and they're trying to comfort her as they as well are being comforted by her, no doubt. But yet the fact of the matter is that she's saying, I cannot provide anything for you. But I, I do want to jump a little bit ahead. Let's go to verse 15 for a moment. Look at what is stated here. Naomi said, and she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. For the Lord do so to me, and more also of aught. But death part thee and me. Now, why would Ruth say such a thing? I'm going to tell you exactly why Ruth would say such a thing. Because God's love was working behind the scenes. Orpah didn't say the same thing. Orpah went and left because Naomi advised her to. It was good advice from a physical standpoint, perspective. But notice what Ruth is saying. Wait a minute, no. And she doesn't just say, I love you, Naomi. But she says, I will be with you, I will go as you, I will stay where you stay, I will live where you live, I will be the people that you are a part of, I will become that, and I, your God will be my God. And may the Lord, may he judge this if I were to do anything other than what I have said. Not only was Naomi left homeless and helpless, but she had no way to provide for them or provide her husband at her age and in the situation. The claim of Naomi here is that it grieved her for their sake that God's hand had gone out against her, yet it was Naomi under the headship of her husband Elimelech that had left the land of bread. Nonetheless, Naomi still claimed as she felt as the Lord had dealt harshly with her. We find a similar situation to this within the life of Jacob. 
When Benjamin was required to return with his brothers to Egypt for food during the famine that was taking place, if you recall, and, and so obviously uh, Joseph is in leadership in Egypt. Jacob thinks that Joseph is uh, dead. And you remember that the sons went to Joseph and they don't know it's Joseph. And then Benjamin, Joseph asks and requires of another son and it's Benjamin. And he said, which is his only true brother, full brother. And he says, I will not, you cannot see me again unless you bring your brother Benjamin to me. And so Jacob is saying pretty much basically over my dead body. I, no, I'm not letting Benjamin go. I've already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin too. And so Jacob says, I'm not doing it. Well, the story progresses, the account progresses in which the famine became so desperate, they became so desperate in the famine, that finally they say, look, you're going to lose all of us, Dad. If you don't send Benjamin, we're all going to die. So what's the difference? And so Jacob uh, decides it's in his best interest to send Benjamin back with his brothers and to go see Joseph, which they don't know is Joseph. And in Genesis 42, 36, this is Jacob's conclusion. Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. Now, again, Jacob at this point, just like Naomi, I want you to see the connection here. Jacob is saying, oh, everything's working against me. God is working against me. I've lost Joseph, Simeon's in jail in, in Egypt, and now I'm going to lose Benjamin too? He says, all this is against me. But what, again, what Jacob could not understand because he had no knowledge because behind the scenes God is working in a way that he could not see nor understand. And in doing so, we find that what was actually happening is, uh, I've said this to you before, is that Jacob now was entrusting Benjamin to Joseph's care and provision in which Joseph could provide for uh, for uh, Benjamin in a way that Jacob was unable to at that point in his life. And so he's letting go of Benjamin and trusting him to Joseph's care, but all the while he's saying, all this is working against me. When this again was all part of God's redemptive purpose unfolding and bringing Israel together as a people under the Egyptians, they would grow, they would prosper, and then be in bondage, and then be delivered out of that bondage by God's purpose and plan, as he had foretold to Abraham when he met with him and made the covenant with him. And we find that this is surely how Naomi felt and viewed all the events as Jacob did, which had led up to this point in her life. The famine, the deaths of her husband and sons had left her empty. Again, chapter 1, 12 and 13 says, Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? And would you stay for them having husbands? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What is she saying? She's saying all these things work against me. I mean, I have nothing to offer you. And everything that has happened is against me. I, nothing is good that has happened. Nothing good can come out of this. That's really what she's saying. There's nothing good going to come of this. But how little she knew. That during all of this, even though she is rightly observing the fact that God has judged and God has chastened and she is returning, God is bringing her back and she, he brings her back but brings her back empty and she is saying, this is all bad. There's nothing good here. Listen, God in his love was working 
behind the scenes in a way that she could not understand. She couldn't even see it at the time. I'm reminded there have been times in my life, literally, that I thought there is nothing good that possibly can come out of any of this. And you know what I found out? God was working in it all the time in ways that I did not see and could not understand. So it was through all that had happened to Naomi that the Lord was not only displaying his love for Naomi and Ruth, because that's what's happening here, and that would become evident in time, but he also was fulfilling, again, his eternal redemptive purpose. As I've mentioned previously, it was through the lineage of Boaz and Ruth that David would be born, and what's more, Ruth is therefore in the bloodline of our Lord Jesus Christ. In redemption, there is so much more going on behind the scenes than we can begin to imagine or understand. Even the things that we think are working against us are being providentially used by the Lord to fulfill His eternal redemptive purpose. Look at me. Look with me in verse uh, at verse six, please. I know we're going back for a moment, but this all has to do with God bringing her back. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Notice just these few words, these four words, for she had heard. Now, simple truth is there were no telephones, no telegraphs, no radio stations, no text messages, no Facebook, no Instagram, no TikTok. There were none of this instant messaging, none of this quick delivery that would happen overnight. But notice something here. God made certain that Naomi heard of what he was doing back in her homeland. She hears it while in Moab. God is working. She's hearing testimony of what God is doing in her homeland, which of course is stirring up within her this desire to go back to the land of bread. The Lord, rather than leaving Naomi to die like her husband and her sons, determined to not only sustain her until he provided for the people in Bethlehem, Judah, but he also determined that Naomi would hear of his provision. Naomi had tasted of the bread of the promised land. She knew what it was to live a life that was pleasant by virtue of the meaning of her very name while living in the land of bread. And once she had heard of what God was doing in the land of bread, the Lord began to stir a hunger in her heart to be back in fellowship with him and his people. Now notice, it doesn't say there was a famine in Moab. Notice something interesting here. Paul says in Romans, Do you not know that it is the goodness of God that leadeth you to repentance? Think about this for a moment. God's chastening and God's judgment upon his people and correcting them? Elimelech says, no, this is bad. This is not good. Rather than humbling himself before God, they go to Moab. They run and flee. But God isn't using a famine in Moab to drive Naomi back. It's his goodness to the people in the land that draws her back. It very well might have been that she would have been happily fed and taken care of in Moab better than what she expected to be back in Bethlehem, Judah. 
but in hearing the testimony that God determined for her to hear of the goodness of God, how he has visited his people, she now has a hunger that Moab can't satisfy. She wants to go back home. And it's not because, oh, there's a lack of bread now in Moab. No, it's the blessing of God back at her homeland. And she says, I'm hungering to go back. I desire to go back. In other words, might I say to you that there is nothing that Moab, Moab had to offer that could begin to compare to the blessings of God in the land of bread. So Naomi, Naomi, uh, Naomi began her journey back to the land of bread. Nonetheless, the journey back was not without the reminder of what it had cost her to leave. Look at chapter 121 again. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Look, the fact that the Lord had brought her home and was bringing her back home is grace in itself. But she still had the reminder of what it had cost to leave. This is not an isolated example within Scripture. Just as with Jacob saying all these things are working against me and Naomi saying the Lord had dealt harshly and with me in this. So also when we find she returns but says, I'm coming home empty. This is not isolated. In the parable of the lost son, Jesus gave the account of the son's return to his father. In Luke 15, 13 and 14, and then 18 and 19. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Verse 18. I will arise, he says, and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Here, this young man in the parable of the lost son, there's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, there's a lost son. All three parables, all the same account being illustrated by Jesus in Luke 15. And you'll find in the account of the parable of this lost son that he leaves full. With his inheritance, he leaves saying, oh, you owe me this. This is what you're going to give me. Give me what's mine. So the father gives it to him. He leaves and he, he wastes it. And now he's empty. He has nothing. And he's hungry. And he begins to ponder and think to himself, my father's servants have plenty. And here I am as one of his sons, and yet I have nothing. So he says, I'll go back to my father, and I'm not going to make any demands I'll plead with him, Father, have mercy on me. Father, make me a servant. Remember, four words here. He leaves and says, give me. He comes back and says, make me. (laughs) He isn't demanding anything. He's saying, oh, just let me be your servant. That's all I'm asking. Rather than give me something that I think is mine or I have this entitlement, it's now just make me a servant unto you. He was empty. And he came back with that reminder, just as Naomi returns. While there's always a cost to one leaving the place of God's blessing, you know what is the place of God's blessing? It's the place of living in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His Word. It's the place of being obedient unto God, submitting ourselves unto Him. And remember, had Elimelech and his family been submissive to the Lord, they would have never end up wound up and ended up in Moab. So the place of blessing is not a location. It's not a church building. It's a place of submission and obedience to the Lord. And might I say to you, there is nothing outside of that that will satisfy. 
the believer in Jesus Christ. We all should remain thankful that the Lord has made provision for us to hear his word and to have restored fellowship with him. 1 John 1, 6 through 2, 1. I've read some of this in the weeks prior. But John writes concerning, again, this is talking about fellowship. Remember, this is not salvation. This is talking about fellowship among believers. And John writes, if we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But then chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, My little children, these things, all of this I've written unto you, I write unto you, that ye sin not. So I'm writing all this that you not sin. But, he says, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Naomi left full, came back empty, but God brought her back. And though she could not realize it at this point in time, God would bring her to understand that he was doing a far greater work than she could ever imagine before the account of their lives end. I simply conclude with this this evening. Thank God for his provision of restoration in our Lord Jesus Christ. God's love is consistently, continually working behind the scenes for we who know him. And even when we sin, even in our sin, God is working providentially to fulfill his redemptive purpose. Even if we are stripped of everything, God is faithfully working his eternal redemptive purpose to his glory. And we can rejoice in that. But let us also be reminded of this sobering truth. Naomi, all the way home and once she reached home, was reminded of the cost of leaving God's place of blessing. There was a cost involved. But thank God, despite the sin, he restores. God's love is constantly, consistently working in ways that we cannot imagine. I'm thankful for that. I've experienced that. And so have you if you know him. And we should rejoice in that truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.